As I walked on through Chatham Street, a fair maid I did meet. She asked me to see her home, she looked in bleak, straight to me away. Sandy, my dear Annie, oh, you New York girls, can you dance the polka? The Long Haul Podcast, America's Irish Voice. Interviews with inspiring immigrants, renowned Irish personalities, and discussions on all things Irish America. Presented by Michael Dorgan and Johnny Kennedy. And I think one of the great highlights of my life was uh, December 1995. Bill Clinton before 300,000 people in Belfast uh, lighting the Christmas tree and talking about peace in Ireland. The first American president to ever visit Northern Ireland. In this podcast, I speak to journalist, author, publisher and peace negotiator Neil O'Dowd. Neil has been a leading and powerful voice for Irish America over the last four decades and has created several media publications, including the Irish Voice newspaper in New York City and IrishCentral.com, the largest Irish digital media site in North America. Neil played a crucial role in the Northern Ireland peace process during the 1990s, in which he served as an intermediary between Sinn Féin and the White House. He has also been a staunch advocate for the undocumented Irish in America. Neil speaks to me about his career and looks ahead to what a Biden presidency means for Irish America and Ireland going forward. Neil's books, including the hugely successful Lincoln and the Irish, the untold story of how the Irish helped Abraham Lincoln save the Union, are available in all good bookstores and Neil's opinion pieces can be read on irishcentral.com. I'd like to add that Neil gave me my first start as a journalist in America when I wrote for Irish Central in 2019, something which I'll always be grateful for. Neil was born in Tipperary and moved to Drogheda when he was nine before leaving for America when he was 25. I began by asking Neil about his move to the US in the 1970s. Yeah, I was uh, 1978, I was 25 and um, I was a school teacher in Dublin and I came over for the summer with the full intention of staying on if I could, because Ireland back in 1978 was a very different place. There wasn't much of anything to do for a young guy in terms of you were boxed in by your background. If you were the son of a teacher, you became a teacher, et cetera, et cetera. So I was very keen from an early age to try America. I just had an affinity with it that I can never quite explain. It was just someplace that was in my head. And um, I felt instantly at home when I arrived here. So I came out for the summer and never went home, basically. And when, where, you were went to California first, Neil, was it? I was actually in Chicago first. I was playing Gaelic football with one of the teams there, and they brought me out and got me a job. It's one of the great unspoken secrets of the GEA, just what a great social dimension <clears throat> that it has for a guy like me arriving out with no relatives here immediately get a bunch of friends, get offered a job and just people to hang out with. So I did all that. And then after about six months, when I was heading into the Chicago winter, I headed off for the sunnier climate of California. And I ended up in San Francisco. I always remember, I wasn't quite sure where I was going. I got into the Salt Lake City Greyhound bus station at three in the morning. And there was a bus going to Los Angeles and one going to San Francisco, and whatever was in my head, I decided to go to San Francisco. So, you know, the lesson from that, I think I say to young people all the time is don't plan your life down to the very last, you know, just let it happen. 
So it's almost like a flip of a coin in the end that you decided to go one way. Yeah, and you know, everybody has to make those kind of decisions. They may not be as aware of them as I was at that point. But, you know, it's kind of a lesson for life to um, whatever road takes you, you take it. And when you were there, Neil, did you, um, you wouldn't go into journalism straight away, did you? No, I went into painting houses. Uh, I was playing for the Connemara Gales, who were a relatively wealthy outfit, and they fixed me up with an apartment and a job. And it was a time when there were very few Gaelic footballers coming out from Ireland, so I looked really good because the standard was like junior B. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I I got very well taken care of and uh, started off in the construction business. Um, but the one thing I noticed was back then there was no communication from Ireland at all. Um, there was a radio show once a week and then there was the, actually the Sinn Féin paper on Fublucht was the only Irish product that was available. And I thought to myself, I had a partner then in the business called Tom McDonough in the construction business. So I said to Tom, why don't we start a newspaper? There was just the beginning of a huge influx of people coming in. And uh, that was, you know, the the beginning of the 1980s emigration, basically an economic phase when Ireland went through very tough times. So uh, I thought it was a good time to start a newspaper. And, you know, when you're young and foolish, you really don't think about the downside. And I always had in my mind that the beauty of America was if you didn't make it in California, you could go to Boston or to New York or wherever you wanted to go. So I didn't feel it was a big risk. And uh, we had about $1,200 and we started an Irish-American newspaper, uh, which was called The Irishman after a previous paper that had been out there. And somehow or another, you know, we kept it going through thick and thin. But it was a great experience because I always wanted to write and um, I wouldn't have done it if I'd gone back home. I think I would have probably just gone back to teaching. Uh, and probably alcoholism. <laughs> and uh, uh, did you have much experience in the journalism world before that, Neil? Uh, no, I had, I had nothing. I, I um, had written a few articles for the Irish press and I called them up when I reached California and they took me on as their American stringer, basically. So I worked for them. But apart from that, it was the newspaper and a painting business on the side and basically trying to make it in different ways, but feeling very happy with myself and content that I was trying something different. And when you said uh, that you started off painting houses, that wasn't a reference to the Irishman movie there uh, la- last year. <laughs> it was, I, it was I, all I above board. That way. Huh? Nobody asked me to paint their house. That, <laughs> I might've felt like it, but it didn't happen. <laughs> Excellent. And so um, when did you make the move then to New York, Neil, and and why? Well, I I always knew that I wanted to do the journalism thing. And um, if you're Irish-American, the only place to be is New York, if you're talking about an Irish-American publication. Yeah. I had had actually been in New York on a visit um, early in 84, and I was going by a newsstand and I saw an Italian magazine called Attenzione, which was based uh, out of New York and was for Italian-Americans, a very nice magazine. And I remember the thought occurring to me at the time of why wouldn't one for the Irish work? And um, so that was the inkling, the germination of Irish-American magazine. 
And um, I had a very good, one very good backer as a guy from the Irish Post newspaper in England, who was a, like myself, a bit of a wanderer and a dreamer in terms of publishing and had made a very successful um, start with the Irish, Irish Post, very popular in England at the time. So he underwrote me to about $40,000 and I headed off for New York and we launched the first issue in November, 1985. Okay. And then it was a shortly afterwards then you set up the Irish voice uh, newspaper. Neil. Yeah. The Irish voice was uh, 1987. At that point, it was obvious that particularly in New York, there was a huge influx of people coming in. And again, you had this, this position where the people who lived in New York and were the old time Irish were very different, had very different perspectives, very different opinions. They weren't reflecting anything about the new Ireland. And whereas the young guys and girls coming in were coming from a very different place. So the, the, the newspaper started up primarily as an instrument of addressing the illegal immigration issue, which was huge for Irish at the time. And our very first cover was a, a poll we took of Irish Americans who had emigrated, would they go back to Ireland? Uh, young Irish American, young yeah. Irish people. And most of them said they'd never go back. But from my point of view, it was, uh, it was a great undertaking because I was really interested in the emigration issue. I was interested right back to the famine times and how this amazing monolithical Irish America beast grew up and became the second largest community in the United States after German Americans and how it had stayed relatively intact through the centuries, basically, and how it was still very much fomenting Irish nationalism and a lot of other things in America. So it was my idea to jump in at the head of that and work with my magazine and newspaper and shape opinions about Ireland and about Irish America. And we went ahead and did that, and we were quite successful. And in the course in the nineties, Neil, you were uh, you played a, a big part in the peace process. You were heavily involved with the Clinton administration in peace negotiations. Uh, uh, tell us a, a bit about that, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, well, what what happened was, um, you know, when you live your life, the two, two or three issues predominate in terms of what you deal with. And what I was dealing with most of the time was immigration in Northern Ireland. When you're an Irish American, and you're running an Irish American publication. So we were very successful lobbying for the Morrison and Donnelly visas, uh, which made about 40,000 young Irish legal mm. in America. And uh, that was a huge victory. But it put me in mind of the fact that maybe something similar could be done on Northern Ireland because it was plain that nothing was happening in Northern Ireland. Both sides were locked in to a perpetual kind of a standoff. And if one side did something, then the other side did something to match it. One atrocity followed another. And there was the beginning of an inkling of an opening because there was a peace process in Israel. There was a peace process in South Africa. This is the early 90s. And uh, we said, why not a peace process in Northern Ireland? Why not jump on board this sense of end of the century? Maybe we can take a new look at these issues. And of course, to do that, you had to involve a very high level of America. And that was where President Clinton came in. We were looking around at who the candidates for president were who might be interested in Ireland. George Bush Sr. was the president. He had no interest in Ireland. But we came across Clinton in Arkansas, of all places. And I remember going down to see him. And um, 
being amazed, absolutely stunned by how much knowledge he had. And he put it down to spending the year in Oxford in 1968, just as the troubles erupted, uh, that he had become involved. And he was very familiar with Bernadette Devlin and people like that. And uh, he knew the Irish issue probably better than 95% of Irish-American politicians I knew. Um, so then through a process of good luck and, and good fortune, he became president. And we had gone to Sinn Féin previous to the, him winning the president. He said, look, if he wins, we think we can bring America into this conflict. And we quoted the idea of uh, an outside-the-box intervention where all the soldiers are locked into this box and then you introduce an outside force and the outside force forces the box to begin to change and alter its, its behavior. And we knew that the only outside the box force was the Americans. And um, so then for three years, I was the intermediary between basically Sinn Féin, the IRA and the White House uh, as the IRA moved towards a ceasefire and as the Americans came to take a bigger and bigger role. So we were the Irish-American aspect of that. And uh, it was clearly a time when change was happening that uh, the IRA in particular realized they couldn't win. Um, and I give them great credit for realizing they couldn't win because a lot of guerrilla armies keep fighting just for the sake of it. And uh, they put together this other package where they would work with the SDLP, the Irish government and America. And we put together the American side of it, led by President Clinton. And our big ask of President Clinton, we had to convince him that um, Sinn Féin were moving in the right direction. And what would really help them would be if Jerry Adams managed to come to America and that he would internationalize the issue. Because at that point, it was very much a ghettoized issue in Belfast when you went there. Sinn Féin were not on the airwaves. He, Jerry Adams or Mark McGuinness were not allowed to go even to England, which was ridiculous. It's part of the same country. But the whole issue was kind of buried in a kind of a narrow sectarian image. And throwing the doors open and bringing Adams to America was the way around it, I thought. And in a hell of a dogfight with the British, we eventually won by a short head <laughs> and, and managed to get approval for the Adams visa which Jerry will tell you himself was one of the three things that had to happen for an IRA ceasefire, that they had to internationalize the conflict. Okay. And so going, going back to meeting Bill Clinton, what drew you to, like he wasn't president at that stage. What, may, what, what, what was the reasoning or why did you, how did you manage to end up going down to Arkansas before he was president? Well, we looked at the candidates for president. We knew that Bush, who was the incumbent, was not going to be any good to us. And the, um, the people on the Democratic side, with the exception of Clinton, had no record or history at all of being interested in the Irish issue. And we didn't honestly think that Clinton's interest would be very deep either. But in fact, that was probably the most pleasant surprise of it all, that uh, he knew exactly the history we were talking about. He knew exactly the outlines. I mean, he was, he was just, and still remains to me, the most brilliant politician I ever met. He just viscerally understood what we were talking about. And he viscerally understood what was the right thing to do. And uh, he didn't let any of the pressure or the British outrage or the Irish government uh, anger sideline him. He just said, this is what I want to do. I'm going to do it. And he, he would go, uh, 
he's like a jazz singer. He he riff. He'd go off in one direction and come back. He he didn't go in a straight line, but we managed to stay on board with him and convince him that this was the way to go. And I think one of the great highlights of my life was uh, December 1995. Bill Clinton before 300,000 people in Belfast, uh, lighting the Christmas tree and talking about peace in Ireland, the first American president to ever visit Northern Ireland. So, um, as you know, there were lots of ups and downs. The IRA ceasefire broke down. A lot of things happened. But ultimately, the fundamentals were put in place. The three legacy stools the Irish government, the SDLP, John Hume played a huge part in that, and uh, President Clinton in Irish America. And did you, would you have visited the White House on a couple of occasions uh, leading up to that? They used yeah. to know me by my first name. That's <laughs> 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 <Jeez>. you, Neil. <laughs> no, I, 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 went, I met Clinton maybe seven, eight times. Um, okay. I met I was mostly dealing with the National Security Advisor. When you're speaking on behalf of Sinn Féin IRA, you have to be very careful what you're saying because if you don't get the message right, and what was interesting was America, the Americans spoke a different, they spoke a political language where, like a jazz riff, they, they would, they'd be over here, they'd concede some stuff, then they wouldn't. Sinn Féin talked like an army. They said, this is what we're doing. We're marching here. And that's all we're going to do. And you better get that message across. We don't deviate. Whereas the other guy was a jazz uh, singer saying, well, I'll do this over here and I'll do that over there. And then it'll all come together. And some questions will never be answered, but we'll get the main question answered. Did, so that was a that was an extraordinary three years for me to be doing that. And did uh, when when Clinton got in initially, was there much? Did his his support for the um, the peace process did that play a role in Irish Americans voting for him, or did the did it? Uh, what, it what it did really was played a role in raising a lot of money for him. Um, the Irish American vote is a bit of a myth; it doesn't exist as a block. But what we did for him, what we did for Hillary, what we did for Biden was raise a lot of money. Like we raised, I think, three million for Hillary, which for us was a lot of money. Bill Clinton, we probably raised two million. Biden was definitely two to three million. So you can make impressions different ways than just showing up and waving a, an American flag. And we were lucky that we had a lot of great backers, Irish American people of very significant business stature who believed in what we were doing and who backed us all the way. So, you know, I think of it now as how the hell did it all fall together? But at the time, it seemed that it was just naturally happening. Yeah. And it, and of course, in those 90s, um, Neil, as you mentioned earlier, the Morrison visa does visas for the undocumented. And uh, we've speak, spoken before and you, you, still, uh, you, still, you still have a drive to get those. There's estimated about 20,000 undocumented Irish still in America right now. And your yeah, drive was to right, get some yeah. sort of uh, legislation passed. To, yeah. And the good news was that uh, just last week, uh, Biden, in his first 100 day program, um, announced that he would introduce an immigration bill. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to pass. It probably won't in its current form, but it's good because during Trump's era, obviously, it was very different in terms of immigration. But it's, it's good to see it on the table again. And I, I think I think we have a decent shot at it this time. And um, we'll talk to us about the, the Morrison visa that time. There was Morrison, there was another one in the 90s, wasn't there, where there was a kind yeah, of a blank... Donnelly. Uh, Donnelly. Donnelly. Yeah, there a total of 40,000 visas. Again, you know, we just did this. I mean, the 
the problem that Irish America had was a sub substantive problem. They weren't taken seriously. There were the NRA guys marching outside the embassies and the guys shouting up the IRA, whereas we were putting together a political operation, which was impinging on people directly and saying, you know, like Congressman Brian Donnelly, we'll make you a hero in the community. We'll, mm. we'll raise money for you. Not that he needed money, to be honest. He was in a very safe seat. But Bruce Morrison, an outstanding example of a guy who, not even Irish, he's a Scottish Lutheran, but he became interested in the issue because we were looking around at who were the immigration experts and he was one of them. And then we got a guy in Connecticut to talk to him. And then Bruce got interested. And the minute he got interested, then he became almost obsessive about it. And uh, one of our big, our big champions in both cases, both with the peace process and with immigration. Do you think it might be harder this time, Neil, uh, in ter- because there is so many undocumented here from other countries that you're going to have to, it's going to, like, I don't think... Immigration is a very, very tough issue. I mean, the last significant immigration legislation was passed in the mid-80s. That'll tell you how hard it is. Uh, the view is, though, that uh, Biden gets in, he's got, he's got a majority in the Senate, very narrow. He's got a majority in the House. Mm. Um, you know, we tried to get Obama to do this, but Obama wanted to do health care. And he was right, actually. He got health. Like when you have all the houses of Congress and the White House, that's when you move. Because after two years, you know, the midterm elections are probably not going to be kind to you. Yeah. Um, yeah which is exactly what happened to Obama. He did very little in the last two years. Uh, and the same now with Biden. There's going to be two or three issues he will do. And we have to be aware and try and make it immigration one of them and will you will you follow the same formula that you've raised money for his campaign and then make a big push again now in the next couple of weeks we play an interesting role in the immigration issue in that we're white and we're european and people look at us like oh you mean the irish are in this too like because there unfortunately is a sense of derision sometimes a, a hispanic community and they're not taken as seriously as they should be with their issues when you throw a European country in with them, as we've done, it becomes a, a slightly different argument, particularly for a lot of Republicans, you know, who wouldn't be aware of the fact that the Irish yeah. have an immigration problem as well. I mean, I can guarantee you if there was immigration in the morning here, given the state that Ireland is in right now, there'd be a huge surge. With, with Biden getting in now, Neil, how, how, how do you envisage, envisage um, his influence in Irish America here I suppose immigration is the main one. Uh, is there anything else that Biden would do specifically for the Irish Americans here, or is it all focused on uh, immigration? Well, it's Brexit, and it's uh, the Irish peace process, basically. Mm. And, you know, we really looked out getting a guy who is probably the most Irish American president in history, even more than Kennedy, in my opinion. I've, I've written an article about that this week for the Irish Times, which is going to be... And I think Wednesday or Thursday. But my point is that Biden is not a natural Irish American. He had a last name that wasn't necessarily Irish. He didn't have to be Irish, but he deliberately chose it and wanted to engulf himself in that Irish working class heritage. And obviously he's very knowledgeable of Ireland. Obviously it's one of his favorite destinations. He's made that clear. So we're starting with a very good but we have to be very practical. I mean, if it's not doable, he's not going to go and die, lie down and die for us. The other thing is Brexit, which obviously 
you know, was a huge shock to the system in Ireland. And when they tried to change the legislation they had in terms of Northern Ireland. So we need somebody, and Biden has already done this as a candidate, but we need somebody to say to the British, you know, you're not going to mess around with Ireland on Brexit. And that's final as far as we're concerned. And Biden will definitely do that. And then there's just the, the normal peace process stuff that you need a guardian, you need an oversight just on everything that's going on. Because you can't, George Mitchell made the point, it's the implementation of the agreement that's the hard part, not the agreement itself. And that's what we'd like to see in the next five years. Plus, the biggest issue is in the next 10 years, it's going to be United Ireland. Because of Brexit, you looked at an opinion poll today where 51% of the people on the island of Ireland want a referendum on Irish unity. That's a huge issue for yeah. Irish America. That's where Irish America came in. That's where we started. That's why we came over here was the famine and all that, the neglect by the British. So the idea of Irish unification will slowly but surely make its way to the top of the Irish agenda within three or four years. And it'll be matched by a very significant fact, which is that the nationalist population in Northern Ireland is outpacing the unionist population in terms of numbers. So the question will just have to come up. It's something that's that's um, come to the fore. It stayed at the fore for Irish Americans, I think, Neil. Well, from yeah. my lifetime here, that the United Ireland, whereas from me living in the South environment for the last 30 years, it wasn't really an issue. It's more of an issue in America than it is actually in the South. So well, I, in fairness, I was the same in Ireland. I thought the North was a terrible nuisance. <laughs> I, I mean, in the early 70s, it was yeah. very bad. And uh, But, you know, I mean, the people of Ireland have proven that when it comes to it, you know, they can make peace in a profound way, which they did with the Good Friday Agreement, which the people of the Irish Republic voted overwhelmingly for. And I think the opinion polls show that they vote overwhelmingly for United Ireland. Would it be easy? No. Would it be very contrary and full, full of setbacks? Probably. But I think there is a way to do it. And I think the way to do it is not pretend that you're doing it, like pretend that you're not doing it, which is what Michael Martin is doing. So <laughs> it would be good to the unionists and that. Yeah. The fact is, you know, it, it is on the table and Brexit put it on the table. Can it be done peacefully, Neil, do you think? What's that? Can it be done peacefully oh, yeah. in United Ireland? Well, English nationalism has caused Scottish nationalism and Irish nationalism to suddenly rear their heads and say, who the hell do these people think they are? I think it can be done peacefully. I, I hope it can be done peacefully. It's not worth killing people over. But I think John Hume's dying breath where he talked about um, you know, this, this concept of Ireland been agreed and agreed Ireland. That's what we want, not necessarily a united Ireland as much as everybody agreeing that this is the best solution out of many solutions that are out there. I see I was reading in Irish Central during the week, uh, Neil, that the ancient order of Hibernians, uh, the leader there, Daniel O'Connell, requested that there was an ambassador to Ireland and a special envoy to Northern Ireland under the, the Biden administration. Mm. What are your thoughts on who to put forward for that and how important would it be? Well, the DAOH actually put forward Bruce Morrison, which I think is a very good step. Um, Bruce would be, you know, remarkably well educated in the issue. Yeah. Um, he's Protestant, which normally wouldn't matter, but it certainly might help in this case. Um, and I think that uh, 
he's a very, very smart guy. He's one of the smartest guys I've ever met. Um, and I think Biden would go for it. It's not an issue that's decided in Ireland, remember, it's decided here. And Bruce would have very close links with uh, Senator Chris Dodd from Connecticut, who they would okay. be long-term friends. And he would have um, talked to Dodd about it. And Dodd is very tight with Biden. And just for people who might know, Neil, uh, the ancient art of Hibernians, how, how big of a sway do they have in Irish-American life here? Well, I, I think in fairness, they're more Catholic than Irish in many ways. Um, they're very concerned about the issue of abortion, but they do go into the Northern Ireland issue as well. And, you know, I, I used to have a very jaundiced view of them, but I admire their integrity. I admire their commitment. They've been going since 1836. They still have 20 to 30,000 members. I mean, Michael, if you landed in the middle of Texas tomorrow and you were looking for an Irish organization, I guarantee you it would be the AOH that you'd find uh, because they are across the country. So I, I think I think they they became a little bit radical on, on Northern Ireland, which is very good. And I, I think, you know, they're doing good work now. I, I wouldn't have said that 10, 20 years ago. Okay. And just looking to the, the Biden administration, um, will we get a couple of uh, Irish? Well, there's Samantha Power, of course, who was born in Dublin, uh, is been, nomina- been nominated. Will we see a lot of Irish-Americans make up the... The new oh Biden administration. Yeah, I mean, Biden's alter ego is a guy called Mike Donnellan, who nobody seems to know. He's been at Biden's side for 48 years. And I happen to know him reasonably well. He's very, very good in Ireland. Then you have um, uh, Sullivan, Jake Sullivan, who's now the National Security Advisor. Jake handled Ireland for Hillary Clinton. So he goes back a long way. He's very, very Irish. Gina McCarthy, who's uh, the environmental woman. Uh, John McCarthy, who's a very young guy. He's only 29, but he's a real rising star. He's going to be a big name in American politics. He's very Irish in his background. Uh, so it just goes on and on. Uh, there was a, the Boston mayor, Marty Walsh, was supposed yeah, to be going. Marty Walsh, yeah. yeah. Again, uh, you know, elected twice Boston mayor by large margins a union guy brought up in a union household, he'll do a great job as Secretary of Labour. What was the the Irish-American, what was the America's relationship with Ireland during the Trump administration? Was there even a relationship? We know Mick Mulvaney was in there for the Trump administration. What were, how how the relations go in the last four years? Well, I, I think there was a view and the foreign minister actually talked about it, Simon Coveney today, um, that he was very close to Boris Johnson and that wing of the British Tory party. And they understood that, that that was his politics. Um, and he was anti, he was anti, or he's pro-Brexit rather. So, I mean, Ireland was very much second, second on his list in terms of the Irish and the English. But, you know, he, he did no harm either. I can't say he was particularly nasty to the Irish or anything like that. I mean, he actually appointed a good ambassador who was a very low-key guy who actually did very well over there. I heard very good reports about him. Mick Mulvaney was very, obviously very Irish, but you know, clearly it was way down the list of priorities. Um, just um, You mentioned Hillary Clinton earlier, Neil. Do you think her political career has finished or will we see her make an appearance in the, the Biden administration? No, I think Hillary is about 75 I think, you know, she's been first lady, she's been secretary of state, she's been senator, she almost won the presidency. I mean, 
she has nothing to, uh, you know, be sorrowful about. She had a great political career, <coughs> and uh, I think she um, she's having well deserved retirement. She's got a lot of three or four grandkids now. I know the the whole uh, digital landscape has changed in the past year, Neil, with the with, with COVID. Uh, you you've gone through a lot of changes in the in the media industry. You set up Irish Central about. 10, 11 years, it's gone past 11 years now, I would think. So how, how has the pandemic changed the, um, the, the news media industry? It's changed it profoundly. I mean, you know, I mean, a company like ours, especially our newspaper, The Irish Voice, would be very heavily dependent, <clears throat> excuse me, on uh, restaurant and bars and entertainment events and things like that, which have just been completely wiped out. Uh, and then you talk about our biggest, one of our biggest clients would have been Tourism Ireland. Again, nobody's going to Ireland. Um, so you literally start off with a clean sheet and you say, what can we rescue here? How can we hold the fort down until things improve? And you just try and get by. You hang on for dear life. I mean, it's uh, it's something that came out of left field for everybody. And uh Everybody in the media business, with the exception of the, of the really big ones, the Times and the Washington Post, are feeling the huge impact. Um, we've been lucky that we, we have very loyal readers and very loyal supporters. But, you know, as a long-term proposition, if we are unable to deal with COVID by the end of 2021, that'll be very hard for us to continue. In terms of the newspaper or your central? Just in terms of... There's no revenue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, if if you can't get back your revenue, what are you? You're you're you know you, yeah. you can't really make the thing work. We have done some things that have been successful. <clears throat> we started uh, Irish Heritage Three uh, Company, which has done very well, where where Americans plant a tree in Ireland in honor of their ancestors. That's been doing really well. Okay. Um, so, you know, you have to be very clever and try and adjust and put in things that you normally wouldn't have thought of. But no, it's a, it's a horrific time. I mean, I'm 40 years in the newspaper business. I never remember anything like this. I remember recessions, I remember. But, you know, we'd have, for us, a huge amount of money between Aer Lingus and Tourism Ireland as advertisers, and neither of them have spent a dime on us. Perfectly understandable because... Yeah. Of they were your main uh, revenue generators, were they? People like that, yeah. yeah. You know, we would have had <clears throat> maybe 20, 25 bars, restaurants, entertainment venues, concerts, um, all that kind of stuff. In, term, in terms of web, website views and clicks, was there a spike in, in digital yeah, readership? We do, we do very well. I mean, we have about 3 million a month uh, users of Irish Central. But, you know, we started yeah. off with uh, 500 people a day. So we've, we're over 100,000 a day now. Um, so the audience is there. And that's the beauty of the Internet, I mean, which people forget a little bit. The Internet allows you to reach everybody. And Irish heritage is spread so wide that it's wonderful that I can get up tomorrow and write a story that a guy in St. Louis can read. I couldn't do that with the Irish voice because it would be too expensive to ship it. Yeah. So it's been it's been wonderful for readership and wonderful for the fact that people are stuck in their homes. Yeah, actually helps us. But on the other hand, the revenue just nosedives. I heard the Irish box has been successful, Neil. The yeah. Irish. <laughs>
I heard that in the down. Yeah, I heard it's been very, very successful. Yeah, it's certainly done very well, you know. But again, there's an idea that came out of uh, sitting around saying, how do we we move the ball down the field in in circumstances? And that's people just ordering. They get, they get. Um, is it four a year? You get four boxes a year, Neil. Is it with, uh, with some yeah. Irish goodies? Yeah, Irish goodies. Yeah, it's actually we sold a huge amount around Christmas. Obviously, it dips down again, but hopefully, it'll pick up again for Paddy's Day. Fantastic. So, just like Neil, obviously, you're a distinguished journalist and a voice in Irish America. You've written a good few books. Um, an Irish voice is one of them. It's kind of a, a bit of an autobiography, per, perhaps. Yeah, it was a, a sort of memoir of uh, everything I did, mostly in America. And then I've written a book, which is, actually has been I've, quite successful, called Lincoln and the Irish, what Abraham Lincoln. I didn't realize it when I was writing the book. Uh, if you write a book about Lincoln or dogs, they're mostly successful. <laughs> I know there was about 15,000 books of Lincoln written, but I didn't realize dogs were so popular as well. They are. <laughs> So I'm writing one about Lincoln's Irish Wolfhound. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> Give us a synopsis on the on Lincoln and the Irish New. What was the, the connection there? And what was the, the gist was of the wonderful uh, next to been to writing, I love history. And uh I always was fascinated by Lincoln as to who was around him and you know, you never read anything about Lincoln and the Irish, and yet there were one one third by some estimates of his army were Irish immigrants who were fighting for the Union. Once they came off the ship, they were, they were hired by the uh, Union armies. I, I, I just wondered what the connections were. And I found a huge amount of connections. Uh, you know, obviously, Maher of the Sword, Thomas Maher, was the head of the Irish Brigade. Oh, yeah. He was very friendly personally with Lincoln, visited him many times, and sided with Lincoln on emancipation, actually went further than Lincoln and wanted the slaves to have a vote. So people like him, and then you look at uh, the people in the White House, like the doorman at the White House was a legendary guy from Mayo who was always complaining to Lincoln that he, he wasn't acting presidential enough. And, you know, lots of stories. They, they even came up with a term for them. The, uh, people who didn't like the Irish called them the Hibernian clique around Lincoln. So there was just a whole story there about... Um, Nursemaids that took care of his kids were all Irish. The uh, old soldier's home where he often visited was full of Irish soldiers who had been injured because they had nowhere to live in America other than in this hospital. So it was just fascinating to uncover the history. And it's been very successful. Yeah, that one's been really successful. I mean, uh, still very successful. So I'm quite happy with that one. The other ones are are doing, you know, they did okay, but I, I... Irish Voice got to number two in the Irish booksellers list. Um, I wrote one last year right at the wrong time because the pandemic hit about how Ireland changed so dramatically in the last 15 years. Um, but, you know, it's to look at a draw. That's, yeah, that's book, from, from a conservative co- country to, to its most liberal, isn't it? How, how Ireland shifted. Yeah, yeah. Well, that disappeared because... The um, pandemic. Very good. And of course, you did one on 9-11, uh, Neil, the fire in the morning, the story of the Irish and the Twin Towers. Again, you know, just a huge subtext of that story. That's what I tend to do. The firemen were, almost half of them were Irish. The police, a third of them were Irish. A lot of Irish construction workers. 
was telling their stories on that day and the heroic stories and the sad stories and the meaningful stories. And it was wonderful to talk to people in their families because you got a sense of incredible strength, even though the adversity had been horrific, that they formed a very close bond together. You can imagine your husband walks out the door and the next thing you hear, he's, you know, he dies in the flames at the World Trade Center. But they were re remarkable people to interview and uh, did me a lot of good to see how people handle terrible setbacks. And Neil, uh, of course, for, for people who want to read your, uh, your articles, you, you're an opinion writer in Irish Central still, and uh, you, were, yeah. you, weren't a, you weren't a fan of Donald Trump in the last couple of years. I no, that's say. for sure. <laughs> I don't like Republicans as a rule, and he, he really took the biscuit. <laughs> but but did, even he, I couldn't believe he went so far as to try and overturn the election. <laughs> that was really, that was really yeah. something I didn't expect. Do you find that there's a big uh, Irish following of Donald Trump oh, here? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I find, I find a lot of people did well financially, but I mean, they were quite, that's fine. They were quite happy with that. That was their barometer. And I think there's nothing wrong with that at all. I don't think a lot of them would have agreed with storming the capital. Mm. That wouldn't be a very Irish sentiment of Irish Americans. But then again, there was a lot of Irish American cops and, you know, who were off duty who went to that demonstration. Yeah. For, for America, how do you see the Biden presidency pan out over the next four years? Of course, he said he's only going to be a one-term president. We've spoken about the connection between Ireland, but uh, for the United States as a whole, uh, what, what, do you, what do you see happening in terms of policy and what policies can he, do you think he can get through the door? Well, I, I think the main thing is just to calm things down. I think the country is very agitated, very nervous. Mm you know, very much on edge. And I think that's wrong. I think he needs to try and build bridges. I know it's difficult, but if the IRA could do it, he can do it. Um, I, I, I think there's a lot to him. I think he's a profoundly uh, experienced man who's gone through great tragedy himself and he understands what it's like to be in the other person's shoes. And I think that'll help him. Yeah. I'd just like to see the country settle down more in terms of less agitation and more coming together. I think that's what that and the pandemic are the two great things I think he could, he could do. do. Do you think the media inflamed the loss of uh, the Trump presidency? Do you think they were fair? Do you think that they added to a lot of it? You're asking me. <laughs> <laughs> You're up the front. <laughs> I, thought they were very, I thought they weren't hard enough on them, to be honest. <laughs> No problem. No problem. <laughs> no, I mean he was he was a unique character, but I think you know Bill Clinton used to say something that was very profound and very simple at the same time. He said, uh, "The presidency finds you out," and it does. It does. And okay. uh, I found him out with Monica, and I found Trump out with. <laughs> Do we have any kind of rising Irish American stars in the background that you could see that you could see taking the presidency in the years to come? I think there's some fine young politicians around. There's a great congressman down in Pennsylvania, uh, Boyle, who's a very um, there's a great congressman in Ohio called Tim Ryan. Keep an eye on Brendan Boyle, um, a young congressman from the Philadelphia area. He'd probably run for the Senate because the current guy announced he's retiring. I keep an eye on Tim Ryan in Ohio. He's also going to run for the Senate. Um, so there's a lot of young blood coming through, but it's it's very different now, you know. I mean, the, 
the old bulls that were Kennedy and Moynihan and Leahy and these guys, they're all in the past now. You know, and there's a whole new young bunch of people there. But they're very smart, very, very ambitious people. And uh, okay. I don't think you'll ever disengage the Irish from politics. Okay. Okay, Neil, thanks very much for your time. I really appreciate it. Unless you want to add, unless you want to add something there that... Uh, well, thank you. Uh, I really welcome the opportunity to come on. And really good questions. Thank you for the opportunity. No problem. And that's all for this week. Let us know what you think by leaving us a comment on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at The Long Haul Podcast. Neil's books, including the hugely successful Lincoln and the Irish, the untold story of how the Irish helped Abraham Lincoln save the Union, are available in all good bookstores and Neil's opinion pieces can be read on irishcentral.com. Please subscribe and leave a rating on the podcast. This will ensure that we can get more episodes to you more often. You can check out all of our previous podcasts on the long haul podcast dot com. You Santi, boy, there and me. Oh, you New York girls, can you dance the poker to me? Why, Santi, boy, there and me. Oh, you New York girls, can you dance the poker? And when we got inside the house, the drinks were passed around. The liquor was so awful strong, my head went wrong.